Now today we are finishing out a series, and that series is the mission. And I'm not going to go through a long uh, uh, recap uh, of that again, and that is in the interest of time. Many of you have heard that recap before. If you want to get that recap, it's on any of the other uh, ones that we've done. And there's just a couple of things to remind us, though. One mind, two passions, and then three questions we ought to ask ourselves. One mind, and that mind is the mind of Christ. It is a life that is lived on mission. It is the life... And as the mind of Jesus, as he approaches the world, we've been looking at him, been looking at how it is that he interacts with people and he models for us what this mission should look like. So one mind, two passions, and that is the fame of God and the freedom of man. It's the way to have a balanced life. We pursue both of those. They are not in in, uh, competition with one another. Uh, They are, in fact, two sides of the same coin or they are the right foot and the left foot, two sides of the railroad tracks. However you want to look at that, I'm going to do it. And then the three questions, where do I need to be set free? And how can God use me where I am right now to spread his fame? How can God use me right now to, to, uh, to set people free? But where do I need to be set free so that I can passionately pursue God's fame and man's freedom? I want to suggest that one of the areas that we probably all need to be set free is coming from this passage right here. And when I say set free, I mean unleashed. It is my perception, it is my um, uh, guess, if you will, it's my thought that most true, genuine Christians do not live this kind of a lifestyle that Jesus is calling us to live out. And it is not because we hate the world. It's not even because we're fearful of the world. I think it is simply because we just don't think about it. I think that we are in many ways enslaved to what is going on in our lives. Nothing wrong with that. Our jobs are good. Our families are good. All those things are right and good. And God calls us to spend a significant amount of time thinking through how it is that we might best minister our families, etc., But I think most of us need to be set free, need to be unleashed to live this kind of life that Jesus is talking about. And this is a life that goes on the love offensive. Now, rather than setting up a problem this morning that Jesus solves, I just really want to look at what it is he has to say. In two passages here in Matthew, one of these passages, Jesus is going to tell us, I will build my church. And the other passage, he's going to tell us, Go and make disciples. And I just want to put those two thoughts together for us as we close out this series. This is what we ought to have in the back of our minds. Jesus says, I will build. So us, go and make. Jesus is going to build his church. He is not going to be stopped. He is not even going to be nudged off course. Jesus is going to continue to build his church. It doesn't necessarily mean that every church is going to survive. It means that the church, big C, is going to move forward, and there's nothing that the devil or anyone else can do uh, do about it. So since Jesus is going to build his church, he tells us, just go and make disciples. I'm going to do all the heavy lifting. I'm going to do the work for you. Just go. I'm convinced that most of us 
don't go and most of us don't make. Again, not because we're evil, not because we um, are, are in opposition to anything. We just simply don't think about it. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18 there, and then we'll turn over to Matthew chapter 28, and we'll close out our time um, in there. But Matthew chapter 16, if you would, in honor of God's word, just stand as read this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You may be seated. Now, this passage shows up in other sections as well. It shows up in Luke. Luke may have a few more details in there, but the basic uh, gist of it is here. Jesus comes to a, a place, and this place is a pretty special place, Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And what's going on at the time in which Jesus is drawing them into this place is pretty impressive. So there is a ruler uh, who is there who has been um, uh, doing rather well. The city is doing well. The region is doing uh, fairly well economically. And so when you would look out, you would see some pretty impressive sights. You would see folks that seem to be doing uh, well in life. There was the fertility symbol of ancient paganism that was famously placed there. Legendary God of nature and worship in this particular place um, uh, uh, bore out his name. And, and I won't go through all the details of it because you might not like it. There was white marble, massive dimensions. The temple to the emperor from which this city had derived its name were Worship took place on a regular basis, money pouring uh, in. And so when Jesus takes them out there, I think all he had to do was just to look out at the landscape that was around, and it was filled with false foreign gods. And he takes his disciples to come and look out, and then he asks them this question, who do the people say that I am? Now, they don't have to give that deep of an emotional response because they're just simply parroting what someone else has already said. And then Jesus gets far more personal and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, this is what I love. We had today several children that were over here. And they have been living off of the faith of their parents. And this is God's design. Children should be living off of the faith of their parents until such a time that they say, now that faith is no longer just theirs. I want in. I want to keep this covenant. Remember, God said, I'll be God to you and to your children, your children's children. So there comes that time in which a child's got to decide, do I want to break the covenant with God or do I want to keep the covenant with God? See, the question could be asked to you and me today. Who do you say that I am? Jesus would ask it. 
Not who does your mom say? Not who does your dad say? Not who does your pastor say that I am? Not who does your spouse say that I am? Not who does your child say that I am? Not who does your neighbor say that I am? Not who does your hero say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Can I ask you, who is Jesus to you? This is the fundamental issue of all of life. What you believe about Jesus is everything. I believe that this Bible is true, what it says. I believe that it gives us God's revelation. He has shown us who he is, how he relates to us, what is required to be made right with God. And it all centers in on the person of Jesus. And so who do you say that he is? And here's the more important question. Not just who do you say that he is, but as it pertains to every aspect of your life, who do you now say that he is? On a Friday night, plenty of opportunities to do some things that you might not normally do. Who do you say that I am? the opportunity to pounce on a business opportunity in which you can really take advantage of someone else and you will make a lot of money off of this transaction at their expense. Who do you say that I am? You're in class. You didn't study particularly well. You're not as prepared as you should be for this test. And if you blow this particular test, it's gonna be really difficult to pass the course. Who do you say that I am? See, it's not just an intellectual ascent to truth. It ultimately comes down to this, and this is what Jesus is driving at for them. Who do you say that I am? Am I Lord? Are you throwing your hands up in the air, surrendering the controls of your life over to me? Or is it just merely, yeah, of course I think Jesus is who he says he is. When you look at your bank account, who do you say that I am? When you look at your parenting, who do you say that I am? Fill in any aspect of life, and the question comes to you and me. Who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up on behalf of the group. And Peter's answer could not have been any more pristine. Notice the simplicity of it. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This term is also means you are the Messiah. You are the one who has come to make things right. You are the one who is going to redeem our very souls as well as restore us to a place of dominance. Bring us back as a Jewish people to the place where we are the ones who are on top over the world. Peter's answer is pristine. He knows exactly who is predicted. He is convinced that Jesus is the fulfillment of many of the prophecies. And Peter, at this point, still has no idea that this means that Jesus is going to go to a cross. But his answer is dead on. You're the Messiah. You exclusively are the Messiah. Notice Peter does not say, you and my hard work are going to get me into the kingdom of God. He says, you are the Christ. 
You are the son of the living God. There was no other option for Peter. And again, he sees it ever so clearly. Now look what Jesus says in response to that. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. There's no way, Peter, you could have figured this out on your own. My Father in heaven has opened your eyes. He's removed the scales. He's allowed you to see me for who I am. And then you just gave this beautiful response. And Peter, I tell you, I'm sorry, you are Peter. And on this rock, he says, I am going to build my church. Now, I don't have time to give you all of the options. I will just tell you this. There is one tradition that says that Peter is the foundation of the church and everything is dependent upon him, that, that hands would be laid on, on Peter and Peter laid them on someone else and someone else. And so we have this direct line of succession as to the leader of the church all the way throughout. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying right now. I feel very confident that's not what Jesus is saying. I feel very confident that what Jesus is saying is what you just said about me, I'm gonna build my church on that. Listen, pay attention right now. I'm going to build my church on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. He alone is the means of salvation. He alone is the redeemer. He alone can do what no one else can do, including us. We can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can save. I'm gonna build my church on that confession right there. Now, there's no doubt in my mind he also knew that Peter was going to have a significant place of influence in the early church, getting things kicked off. No doubt that that's true. But the church is built on the confession, Jesus is Lord. Again, who do you say that I am? The church is not built on music. The church is not built on preaching. The church is not built on kids' ministry or student ministries. The church is not built on men's ministries or women's ministries. The church is not built on any Bible study. The church is not built on anything other than the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the church is a group of people who have banded together to say, we got no hope outside of Jesus. And so we're going to gather. We're going to gather every week and we're going to remember who he is. I'm going to build my church. Jesus uses this word only twice. In all the recorded teachings of Jesus, the word church from him comes out only twice. It's right here. And then it's just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 18 when he says, when you have conflict with one another, go directly to the other person. If they don't respond, then bring them to the church. This is a ecclesia. This is a group of people. It was used in other ways um, throughout uh, as well. It was uh, uh, used in, in other gatherings that folks would have um, in there, but Jesus uses it in a, in a distinct way uh, to refer to the, the gathering of his particular people. Notice this. He's not saying a church service. Notice he's saying the church. I will build my church. I will build you and you and you and you. I will build. I'm going to start with you at ground zero. And the only thing that you're going to know is just that 
I'm some really big deal, Jesus is saying. You're going to know that I alone can, and then I'm going to start going to work on you, and I'm going to go on your insides. The Holy Spirit is going to attack over there, and I'm going to start changing you from within so that your desires are actually changing to be what my desires are for the world. And you're going to do some things that I don't approve of, and you're going to have your conscience get pricked. You're going to say, oh, man, I wish I hadn't done that. And then you're going to be drawn to do some other things that you probably didn't want to do in the past, but ways in which you can now serve others in the process, benefit others, bless others along the way. I'm going to build you. I'm going to do it from internally. It's going to go every individual. And then every individual, as we grow, we collectively grow, somehow the church is going to be strong. You've heard this illustration before, but take a marriage for just a moment. It'll apply in other relationships, but just marriage there. You do realize that marriage, it's not just acceptable to have two people in a marriage to be a great marriage. It requires three. It's husband, wife, and you're both pursuing the person of Jesus. You take that third person out of the equation, and you got two people that are going to do the best that they can to try to get on the same page. And at the end of the day, it's going to be like magnets that are the, that are the same charge. And you're, <clears throat> and you're going to try as hard as you can to get together. This is what we're called to. This happens when Jesus enters the equation. So as a group of people, do you realize that we will never get unified? We will never be on the same page unless we are all pursuing the grand tuning fork of Jesus. But if we collectively pursue him, individually pursue him, we will become closer to one another. And this is what's so great. It's just a matter of time before that is really unfortunate. It is just a matter of time before we do some things in which we are going to hurt one another. And when we are pursuing Jesus, Jesus changes the heart and get this. He actually makes us long to forgive one another. The church is going to let you down. The church is going to hurt you. The church is going to wound you like no other relationship you have because the church means so much. But Jesus says, I am going to build my church. I will tell you this, the church is going to wound you like no other, but the church is going to love you like no other. The church is going to show up like no other. The church is going to support like none other. I will build my church, and then he says, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, there's a few different ways that we could take this. We could focus in on the gates aspect, which I think would be appropriate. And the gates of Hades, the gates represents the defensive posture. It's the entering and exit of the city. And so the gates would allow folks to come in. They would allow folks to go out. And so in this context, we could say that the gates of hell are the defensive posture of the kingdom. And so we as the church are the offensive battering ram going up against the gates of hell. And we are pushing into darkness. We are taking over enemy territory. I think there's a strong case to be made for that view. And I think he probably, uh, probably intends that to be there as well. In other ways, we could focus not so much on the gates, but on Hades itself. And thinking about Revelation 1.18, we could think about death itself. And not even death is going 
to overcome the church because Christ is going to overcome death. We are going to overcome death because of Christ. We are going to be raised again in the last day. I think that there's good reason we should embrace that, accept that as well. However, I, I think if we put all three of these together, I think not just the death of Jesus, not just us, but, but death and dying itself as it pertains to persecution, as it pertains to... I think that's also what's included. I think all three of them are here, and I think what Jesus is saying is this. I'm going to build my church from inside, from internally, and, and hell itself will unleash its fury upon my church. Do you remember what he said to the disciples? Hey, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Remember, it hated me first. And it put me up on a cross after I had done literally nothing wrong. The only person who could ever say, nope, I didn't do anything wrong. And he went up on a wood cross as a result of his life. And, and so the, the world, the system of the world, the one that's operated by the evil one himself, not literally everyone in the world, because not everyone in the world hates the church, etc. But the world is going to, uh, to, to hate uh, you, and so hell is going to unleash all of its fury upon you, the church. And death and dying, the death that's going to occur of the church, is not going to, to defeat it. I thank God that we live in a country that will put people in jail who kill Christians. That is not true in many other places in the world. We spoke a little bit about it last week, but some of the things that are taking place over in Israel right now, some of those very same things have been happening to missionaries for years. What happens to women and children in some of these locations, it's just not even worth mentioning. But not even that is going to stop the church. Do you want to go on the love offensive? Or do you just want to be a part of a group that gathers every week and gets some good music as a motivational talk and is able to somehow or another separate itself enough from the world that we just don't have to deal with the world? Or do you want to join the mission of Jesus? Jesus says, I'll build. Flip over to Matthew chapter 28. We are now in a section of Matthew where Jesus has died, he has been crucified, he has been raised from the dead, and he is now about to leave his disciples. He has given them some final instructions. Matthew 28, I begin reading in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now before he died, he made a promise that he was going to build his church and that nothing could stop it whatsoever. No matter what opposition comes to it, nothing is going to be able to stop 
this, this irresistible force that is called the church. And Jesus is the centerpiece of it. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the rock that it is going to be built on, the confession of him. Peter and others later on would call Christ the chief cornerstone. He is the centerpiece, um, uh, if you will, of the church. And right now it tells us the 11 disciples go uh, to Galilee post-resurrection. There's 11 because Judas has uh, betrayed Jesus, and they have yet to replace him um, in this process. They go to see Jesus. When they saw him, it says that they worshiped, but some doubted. A few different ways that we could take this. I think the best way that we could take this is this. There are people that go, and they see Jesus, and they immediately worship. Their bodies match the posture of their hearts. And simultaneously, they had not yet been completed in terms of their sanctification, and so they're able to worship and doubt at the same time. I think that's the best way to take it. I may be dead wrong. I have never been a worshiper that has had zero doubts. There are always things in my mind I just don't know. I don't, I'm like the man in the scriptures that says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. So they see him and they worship him, an appropriate response, and some doubt it. I, and I don't think it bothered Jesus in the slightest. When Jesus came and, I'm sorry, then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. This is a theme all throughout the book of Matthew. It starts out with the genealogy of Jesus. It talks about the authority of Jesus' teaching. It talks about authority he has to cast out demons, etc. There's authority that he has. He finally gets to the end of it. He says, hey, look, there's no authority that's out there that has not been given to me by the Father. Whether it's above this earth, whether it's on this earth, there is no authority anywhere in all of the cosmos in which I don't have authority. All authority has been given to me. Staking, once again, the claim that he has that every person who follows him is to follow him in this posture right here. It's not my talent. It's not my gifts. It's not my money. It's not my time. Nothing is mine. It's all yours because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you and you are Lord. All authority, because he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, this would have hit this particular Jewish group hard. Because again, what they were expecting is that they were going to rise once again to a place of prominence over and above all of the rest of the world. And yes, there would be some crumbs that would fall off and some other people would get saved in the process. But what Jesus is saying now is, hey, this mission, it starts through the Jewish people, but the whole point is so that you guys can have the message and then scatter all over the world. And I want you to disciple every nation on planet Earth. There's not a tribe or a tongue or a group of people anywhere that I don't want to have this message. So they had to make a shift in their mind away from seeing people as natural enemies now to being those that they were going to fight for rather than fighting against. Is there anybody in your mind right now that you would respond in the same way that Jonah did? And God says, I want you to get this gospel message to them. And you'd say, I'll get it to anyone else, Lord, but not them. If you had an opportunity right now to sit down with a member of Hamas, 
Would you be excited about sharing the gospel? One of the most moving stories that I've, powerful stories that I've ever seen was of the story of one of the former running backs right here at FSU. You remember his mother was killed and he went to go visit the man who killed him in prison. As he's telling the story of, of, of going, um, he, he talks about the emotion that overwhelmed him, but he could not get out of his mind all that Christ had done for him. And so when he actually got a chance to meet him, and said, God had already done a work so much so in his heart that the only thing he could offer was forgiveness. I will build my church. So you now go and make. Make disciples of all nations, and he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Certainly we should include water baptism in here, but I think the primary meaning of what he is saying here is that they would be identified with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, notice he doesn't say, I want you to teach them everything there is to teach them. He says, teach them everything or all that I have commanded you. Teach them to obey rather than teach them everything there is to know. When you go about discipling people in your life, do you try to just teach them everything or are you helping them learn how to obey the voice of the Lord? Do you remember the story of the prophet who is uh, the younger boy? He hears the voice of the Lord. He doesn't quite know what's going on, so he goes to the other prophet on the scene. He's like, what's going on? I hear God calling my voice. Then go back and just listen. Can you teach someone how to obey what it is that Christ has said or Obedience looks like this. <laughs> because I can teach people all day long what it is that God has said, and I can turn anybody into a Pharisee. But teaching them to bow the knee of submission before him, such as, yes, Lord, whatever it is that you are asking, that is what I want to do. That is a different thing. And behold, I am with you always, he says, to the very end of the age. Hey, you don't have to worry about making this church the coolest place to be on planet Earth. You don't have to worry about what it is that Wildwood looks like or feels like or, or et cetera. Don't worry about making it the hippest place, the place where pastors wear Lawn mowing shoes. You walk with Jesus. You submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. And come along somebody else who's in the church who may be struggling, maybe looking at their own sin. They, 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 they get um, uh, uh, overwhelmed with the volume of that. Just come alongside of them and teach them how to go back to the person of Jesus.
you know what the mission of God is? It's seeing a world who desperately needs Jesus, introducing them to the person of Jesus, and when they wander off course, bringing them back to Jesus. I would rather be in that business than in the business of trying to make this a really killer place to be. I will build. You go and make.